Luke 23, 13-25 Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Well, here we have two men on the same charge, the charge of sedition and insurrection. One has been tried and found guilty of that and murder, and the other has been tried and found innocent. One is Barabbas and the other is Jesus. Three times Pontius Pilate, the procurator, declared Jesus innocent. Verse 14, I've examined him in your presence, he said and have found no basis for your charges against him. Or verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, he appealed to them again. Verse 22, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Pilate hadn't found any weapons, he hadn't found any incitement to violence, he hadn't um, even seen an attempted rebellion, and he certainly saw no band of, uh, of violent rebels following Jesus. And yet, four times the Sadducees and the mob act unjustly, unreasonably, irrationally. Verse 14, they brought him before Pilate on a charge of incitement to rebellion. Verse 18, away with Jesus, as they appealed for uh, Barabbas to be released, as there was the custom that a prisoner could be released on that particular festival. Verse 25, they stir the mob to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And verse 23, with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And we read, verse 23, their shouts prevailed. So Jesus is declared innocent. He should not have been punished. He had done nothing wrong to deserve death, to quote Pontius Pilate's own words. And yet the Jews, and in particular their leaders, the Sadducees, the high priests, and the mob that they had, 
around them that early morning, that they're responsible for this unreasonable and unjust pressure. Pressure, pressure which Pilate, who lacked moral courage, who lacked principle, caved into. It was the record of the early church was this. Peter said, you killed the prince of life. And Paul says, you, the Jews, killed the Lord Jesus. Ironically, the tried and convicted murderer, Barabbas, is freed, and the tried but found innocent Jesus is punished by the most excruciating of deaths. And God allowed it to happen. Why? Well, the rest of the New Testament is a commentary on these events, as are the incidental comments and the quotes and their contexts at the events. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteous of God. It is the great exchange. We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Sin is punished so we can be accepted. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing that you have made and forgive the sins of all those who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may receive from you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Well, we switch from uh, Luke's uh, account to Mark's account. And Mark's message, like the other evangelists, climaxes with the crucifixion of Jesus. Each detail is individually highlighted. In Mark, the word and comes in frequently and it jerks our attention from one point to another. Having been betrayed, abandoned by his friends, mocked, beaten and whipped by his enemies, he is brought out to die. Jesus of Nazareth was killed by crucifixion, which meant he was nailed naked in front of a jeering crowd. He died from exhaustion, from asphyxiation, lack of breath, from exsanguination, which is lack of blood, and dehydration, lack of water. As awful as that is, it was shared also by the two criminals either side of him. There's nothing remarkable in the physical death. It is the many other elements occurring before and during and after Jesus' death which convey to us its unique character and significance. There is the fulfilment of ancient prophecy from, for example, Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or Amos 8. And Jesus' own comments here start to show this. Later, the resurrection, the changed disciples and the powerful spread of the gospel all add their testimony to the evidence and explanation found during the crucifixion itself. Now Mark names a witness to the event, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is the Roman province which today we would call Libya. And presumably he mentions his name because he's known to two members of the early church, Alexander and Rufus, who were his sons. Now Jesus died unexpectedly quickly, partly because he'd been flogged near to death, but he also turns down the offer of a kind of mild sedative, as he vowed he would, that he wouldn't drink again after the Lord's Supper, wine, until he came in his kingdom. And he did it, we're told, because he, didn't, he wanted to ensure that he received the full measure of God's wrath against him. We have the dicing soldiers. We have the two thieves. They're important to Mark. They're important to us. Because they again show the fulfilment of Scripture. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he would be hung there with transgressors. But even here, God is fully in control. The context of the references help to explain something that we would otherwise find incomprehensible. So take, for example, the first words of the cross recorded by Mark. The first is Pilate's indictment, where he has nailed up Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
Remember Caiaphas? He had been an unwitting prophet when he'd said in John 11, to the, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Well, here we have Pilate similarly being an unwitting prophet when he nails up the truth. He may have done it to really aggravate the Jews, but he nails up Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and he nails it up in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic so that everybody who could read would know. In fact, what Pilate is doing at the end of Mark's Gospel is unwittingly stating what Mark had spent his whole Gospel revealing that Jesus is the King and the Lord. Well, we have echoes of Psalm 22 when we see the mockery that different people all make of Jesus, even from his two fellow sufferers. And the taunts are once again unperceived prophecy. They don't realise they're speaking the truth about what is going on. Jesus' prophecy of the sign of the temple where he says, I will destroy this temple and in three days it will be raised again. They, of course, think he's talking about the physical temple, which to them represented the presence of God on earth. But he, in himself, is the visible presence of God on earth. He is the temple. And if they destroy that, as they are at that moment doing, he will raise it again in three days. Similarly, verses 30 and 31 are also true. He could have come down from the cross, and it's because he is set on saving others that he cannot save himself. And verse 32 is the final cynical demand for a sign, where effectively they're saying, if you are the Christ, prove it. Well, they didn't see the signs which were so glaringly obvious in his lifetime. They're not likely to see them now. pray. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. The sixth hour, when darkness came over the whole land. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Well, this is the shortest passage, but the longest comment. As we see that God is angry, and we see that Jesus was abandoned. Verse 33, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, any God-fearing Jew would know what that meant, that darkness in the daytime was a sign of God's anger and judgment. In the Old Testament, God judged Egypt by sending darkness over the land when Pharaoh would not release the Jews from captivity. Time and again in the Bible, light symbolizes God's presence and his favor, while darkness tells us God is acting in punishment. So when Jesus dies, and darkness comes over the land in the middle of the day, we know that God is angry. Mark is counting his hours according to the Jewish system of timekeeping, so the sixth hour would have been 12 noon. At the moment when the midday sun should have been at its brightest in the sky, a darkness fell over all the land and remained there until three in the afternoon. It couldn't have been an eclipse because Passover always fell on a full moon and a solar eclipse can't happen during a full moon. No, something very clearly supernatural is going on at this particular point and the message is clear that God is angry. Now, we may well have some resistance to thinking of God as someone who is angry or wrathful, but that's because we apply our human understanding of those words, and we think of some rather unpredictable, capricious old so-and-so who's just sitting on his cloud and has just got up in the morning and his favourite cereal is not available, and so he just at random throws down some thunderbolt and wipes out sort of half a nation. That is not anywhere near the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible who's revealed himself consistently over centuries. He is somebody who has a settled, controlled, personal hostility to all that is wicked and sinful. He is a righteous God and he has a right to be angry about all that is wicked in this world. And if you were a person who was on the receiving end of some wickedness, you would expect, if there is a God, that he would be a God who would be just and would do something about that. That people in this life would not ultimately, they might get away with it in this life to some extent, but they will not ultimately get away with it. We demand, at times of injustice, a God of justice. 
Imagine if you had been the family of that policeman whose case was in court this week where some drug-crazed young person had uh, driven his car straight at the policeman. If you'd been his family, deprived of a son, a husband, a father, a friend, you would rightly demand justice. Or if you, this week, heard the verdict against Radovan Karadzic, who 20 years ago was uh, in charge of some pretty despicable stuff in the Balkans War. If your relatives had been murdered in the Srebrenica concentration camp, you would rightly want the court in the Netherlands to find him guilty and to punish him. And you rightly demand that of God. And God isn't just angered by human sinfulness. He has the power to punish it. And it is good that evil matters to God. That he doesn't just kind of sit up there benignly and just let it pass. Let it be whitewashed away. Taking the attitude that it doesn't matter. As Jesus died on the cross, darkness came over the whole land. So first we see that God was angry. But that leaves us the question, with whom was God angry? Who was he punishing? And the staggering answer is that God was punishing Jesus. And Jesus is abandoned. He is ditched by God. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry tells us that Jesus was abandoned. And that's what lies at the heart of what we are commemorating this Good Friday. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned by God. It was Jesus that God was punishing. My God, he cried, why have you forsaken me? Now there's no doubt that on the cross Jesus did suffer appalling physical agony. But what is being spoken of here is spiritual agony, of being forsaken by God. He says, my God, why have you rejected me? Why have you thrown me out? And deep in his soul, Jesus is experiencing what it is to be detached from God, away from God, separated from God and the good things of God. And he's being separated from them as he dies. Jesus, the light of the world, is being forsaken, abandoned by God, separated for the first time in all eternity from the Father who loved him forever. He'd never rebelled against him. He never deserved any punishment. At the start of Mark's Gospel, Mark had recorded what God said of Jesus. This is my son whom I love. And now he records the son's cry. My God, why have you forsaken me? So why is he being punished? And the answer 
is so that we can be rescued. How can this be? Well, pretend that this video in my hand is actually the record of a life. Let's pretend that every word and deed has been filmed and recorded. It's the record from birth until death. So there's plenty of space on there for the rest of the life to be recorded. And the first thing that has to be said is that on that DVD, if it's your life or if it's my life, that there is much to be applauded. Perhaps there's a loving home here with unconditional love and real honesty. Perhaps there are achievements in the classroom or at college or in the arts or on the sports field so that God can be pleased. The life he's given you, you have put to very good use. Perhaps there's a blossoming or fruitful career on here or perhaps an admirable marriage. Perhaps there's real service to the community, a real love for friends and for other people, something God would celebrate. But we know that there is much on this DVD of which one might be rightly ashamed. Sherlock Holmes has experienced something of a renaissance thanks to Benedict Cumberbatch. While the author, Sir Conan Doyle, you may well know, had a sense of humour. And he once sent a telegram to 12 very respectable acquaintances of him as a joke. And the telegram read simply this, flee at once, all is discovered. And within 24 hours, six of them had fled the country. You see... There is some darkness in all of our lives, things of which we would rightly be ashamed. If you don't believe me, just try between now and Sunday when you come again not to have one wrong thought, one wrong word, or one wrong act. But by far more important on this DVD is the way in which we have treated God. Because we've so often functioned as atheists. Yeah, we believe there's a God. We believe he's somewhere up there. He's quite detached. He doesn't get too involved. He'd like to, but we just leave him up there. We, we are functional atheists, even though we do recognize when the chips are down when we suffer a bereavement, that there is a God. We don't give him the respect and the due that is his. There are times, in effect, when we've said, leave me alone, let me run my own life, when we've not let God be God, when we've insisted on calling all the shots, when we've insisted on basically being the centre of the universe. Sometimes when I'm at a cemetery waiting for the hearse to arrive, 
or after we have committed the coffin to the grave and I stand back and let the mourners peer over, I look around at some of the tombstones and would you believe it, I've even read one which said, I did it my way. You know, taking the Frank Sinatra song and sticking it as an epitaph to one's life. That is an insult to God. Well, the Bible tells us that all of our life is on this DVD. All the times that we've ignored God, treating him as if he's not really important at all. And the times at which we have uh, used him, like a genie in a lamp, you know, rub the lamp, the genie appears. We say, God, do this for me, and if you do this for me, I will do this for you. We bargain. As if he's just the kind of servant there at our beck and call. And we blame him when things have not gone the way we want. But behaving like that, using him, ignoring him, blaming him, well, it breaks relationships, just as it would break human relationships if we used people, if we ignored people, if we blamed people. And that kind of breach of relationship, the Bible calls sin. And in his world, us breaching our relationship with him, he has a right to punish us for it. And he does it ultimately by simply confirming our choice. He is a just judge. And in the end, he'll give us what we have basically asked for. And if we've said to him, leave me alone, then, we'll, then there will come a day with, when with great sadness and a heavy heart, God will say, okay, I leave you alone. I'll confirm the decision you made about me and will leave you completely alone. And that's what the Bible calls hell. It's to be without God. It's to be without all the good gifts that he has, one of which is the love and friendship of others. It's to be utterly alone with no hope and no comfort, reflecting on what a life we've wasted. In verse 34, Jesus cries on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone? I'll come back to this DVD of ours. It's the DVD of your life or my life. All our guilt and sin and shame is there. Now let's suppose my left hand here represents my life and the ceiling represents God. Now, this life of mine, with its adverse record, forms a barrier between me and God. And I can't get rid of it. On the other hand, if this hand represents Jesus, and again, the ceiling is God, Jesus has no barrier between himself and God the Father. He lived in a perfect relationship with him for all eternity, even when he lived as a human being with all the various temptations and trials that we all face. He never succumbed. He never gave in. Now, well, that's the situation. But on the cross, 
what Jesus was doing was taking all my sin, all your sin, upon himself. He was being excluded from the presence of God. He was experiencing the punishment. And where does that leave us? Well, we have the possibility of a perfect relationship with God. So God was angry and Jesus was abandoned for me. Let's reflect on that for a moment before we move on. Merciful Lord, absolve your people from their offences, that through your bountiful goodness we may all be delivered from the chains of those sins which by our frailty we have committed. Grant this, Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake, our blessed Lord and Saviour, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The reading is taken from Mark 15, 37 to 41. The ninth hour when Jesus breathed his last. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So God was angry, Jesus was abandoned for us, and that leads us to this point. We can be accepted. Let's look at verses 37 and 38 here that Mary's just read. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and then the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus when he heard this cry and saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Now this is quite a strange little section because in verse 37, it takes place at the cross with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And then verse 39, we're back at the foot of the cross with the centurion. But verse 38 doesn't take place at the cross at all. It's as if it's a film and the camera has actually flashed from the cross, from Golgotha, outside the city walls, to the temple, the most dominant feature within the city walls. And in verse 38, we are at that temple, and we see a most amazing thing. We see this 30-foot-high curtain that was in the temple, split, torn in two from top 
to bottom. The curtain was really more like a carpet. It was the thickness of a man's span of a man's hand. It was vast. It was beautifully made. It was of one piece of material. And yet, and yet there is this kind of ripping as it fell into two pieces. But we can only really understand why that matters when we realize what the curtain stood for. Because the curtain was actually a terrifying barrier between the Holy of Holies, which was the heart of the temple, where God's presence was. And it was a massive barrier between God and his people. And it was there because his people had rebelled against him. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year, and that after an elaborate ritual of sacrifices. It wasn't anybody. It wasn't even a priest. It was only the high priest and only once a year. And the whole system was designed to show that it was no easy thing to come into the presence of God. You can't just sort of breeze into his presence. The curtain was like some kind of big no-entry sign. It said loudly and clearly that it was impossible for sinful people like you and me to just walk into the presence of God. And then suddenly, as Jesus dies on the cross, this curtain is ripped into by God. It is from top to bottom. Well, it must have made a deafening noise. But it was as if God was saying, the way is now open for people to approach me. Why? Because Jesus has been abandoned because Jesus has taken God's anger so that we can be accepted by God. If you're of a certain age, there are certain uh, events which stand out in one's memory. One of those was in November 1989, when, if we were alive then, we can picture now those scenes in Berlin, when people were tear tearing down the Berlin Wall, the wall which represented the barrier between East and West. The Cold War was coming to an end. People from the East and from the West were able to meet up once again. And when this curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, the Cold War between God and us was ended. The barriers were down. Now there is nothing to prevent us from having a personal relationship with God. <coughs> Let's pray.
Most merciful God, who by the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, delivered and saved the world, grant that by faith in him who suffered on the cross, we may triumph in the power of his victory through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.